0: This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts in their fields. The Great Courses created a special, limited-time offer for We the People listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, at up to 80% off the original price. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com people. That's thegreatcourses.com people. We the People is also sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com people. That's casper.com people, promo code PEOPLE. As if that wasn't enough, this episode of We the People is also brought to you by Harry's.com. When did shavings get so expensive? Talk about personal experience with buying razors and shaving products at a store, having to wait for the store clerk to open the case to get the razor. It's time-consuming, and you pay too much for a high-quality razor. Harry's.com delivers a superior shave for an incredible price. Go to Harry's.com, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code PEOPLE. That's one word. Go to harrys.com and enter coupon code PEOPLE at checkout for $5 off the starter set. And start shaving smarter today. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People constitutional podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis, This week, we continue our series of blockbuster podcasts that review the week's big decisions at the Supreme Court, a veritable constitutional drumbeat leading to the final day of the term. And it is impossible to imagine a louder beat of the drum than the decision that came down today. Thursday, June 25th, the Supreme Court ruled by a six to three majority that federally created exchanges under the Affordable Care Act were eligible for tax subsidies Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion and was joined by Justice Anthony Kennedy, as well as Justices Breyer, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan. There was a vigorous dissent by Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, joined by Justices Alito and Thomas. Joining me to analyze this blockbuster decision are two stars of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He filed a brief for the Cato Institute in the King v. Burwell case. Erwin Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Price professor of First Amendment law at the University of California Irvine School of Law. All right, gentlemen, let's jump right into it. Irwin, first of all, congratulations for having correctly predicted the outcome in King v. Burwell. Uh, not long ago, you predicted that it would be a 6-3 uh, decision uh, with Justices Roberts and Kennedy joining the liberal justices. Uh, uh, tell us why you uh, predicted this accurately, and please summarize the majority opinion. What was Chief Justice Roberts's
1: reasoning? Of course. Let me be sure that the issue is clear. The goal of the Affordable Care Act was to make sure that almost all Americans had access to health care. Congress had found that there were 50 million people who could not afford health insurance and did not have meaningful access to the health care system. For the poorest among us, the Affordable Care Act said that states had to cover within the Medicaid programs those within 133% of the federal poverty level. For those above this income, but still of lower and lower middle income, Health insurance is made affordable through tax credits. The law says that every state is to create a health care exchange. But Congress constitutionally cannot force states to adopt laws or enact regulations. And so the law says if a state does not create an exchange, then the federal government will create, quote, such an exchange. The law says for those who qualify economically, they will get a tax credit if they Purchase insurance on a, quote, state-established exchange. Now, the question, the challenge raises: is, what if somebody purchases insurance on an exchange created by the federal government? That person's still entitled to the tax credit. It's estimated there's about 8 million people in the United States, so estimates vary, who are able to afford insurance only because of these tax credits. The challengers say state-established exchange means what it says. Only those who are in the 16 states, state-established states, get the tax credit. The United States government says the statutory language is clear. The purpose is clear. Anyone who qualifies economically gets a tax credit, whether it's exchange created by the state or the federal government. Supreme Court 6-3 ruled in favor of the United States government. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court. He noted that the language of the statute could be pointing in either direction. He noted that at times the Affordable Care Act is not, quote, artfully drafted. After all, it's a 2,600-page statute. There is the language that the challengers point to that says it's a tax credit only with the state of exchange, but he also says that there'll be exchanges, such exchanges, include those created by the federal government. He says such exchange includes both state and federal exchange. He then focused on what was Congress's purpose in adopting this statute? Congress's purpose, obviously, is to make health insurance affordable for those who otherwise not be able to get it through tax credits. And he says that if the challengers won here, this would collapse the exchanges at least in the 36 states which created by the federal government. The estimates are that if the people who are getting tax credits were no longer insured, the risk pool would shrink. costs. And these federally created exchanges would go up dramatically. The Rand Corporation estimates estimates that the cost would go up by as much as 45%. Others would then be priced out. This would cause what Chief Justice Roberts refers to as a death spiral that would collapse these exchanges. And maybe even in the 16 states where they've created exchanges, there's enough interdependence across the country, they would all collapse. Chief Justice Roberts says Congress here was trying to make health insurance available. It's inconceivable that Congress wanted to give states that didn't want to create exchanges the ability to collapse the entire statute. And so the Court 6-3 says that those who qualify economically will continue to get tax credits, whether it's on an exchange created by a state or an exchange created by the federal government.
0: Thank you so much for that great summary of the Chief Justice's reasoning. Ilya, you wrote a blog post on Cato.org today that begins with a quotation. If we give the phrase, the state that established that exchange its most natural meaning, there would be no qualified individuals on federal exchanges, End quote. You go on to say you'd think I pulled that phrase from Justice Scalia's dissenting opinion in today's big Obamacare ruling. You'd be wrong. It comes from the pen of Chief Justice Roberts. You say that the chief contorts himself to eviscerate the natural meaning and rewrite Congress's inartfully concocted scheme, Scalia rightly calls this novel interpretation absurd. Tell us more about why you think Justice Scalia was right to call the interpretation absurd and what Scalia's uh, counter-interpretation was.
2: Sure, and uh, thanks for having me on again. It's a a pleasure to be involved with uh, the Council of Freedom and the uh, National Constitution Center more broadly. Um, This, to me, and to Justice Scalia, is uh, a relatively simple case. You have the clear text established by the state, and when you have clear text, courts are supposed to enforce that under various canons of statutory interpretation, unless it would lead to uh, an absurd or what the uh, majority here, through Chief Justice Roberts, found to be an implausible result. Uh, and so, if uh, it wouldn't be absurd or if it's pl- a plausible story can be told, uh, of why, uh, the Affordable Care Act would be structured such that people getting, uh, insurance from federal exchanges wouldn't be eligible for these tax credits. Um, uh, if, if there's a plausible story there, then the majority's argument, the government's argument, the majority's, uh, ruling, uh, is wrong. Uh, and here, that plausible story, uh, is that, uh, uh, with this provision, like with many others, uh, many other federal programs and other parts of the Affordable Care Act, um congress wanted states to run their own exchanges uh, but it couldn't um, require states to do so, although uh, originally somebody who was drafting the text uh, uh, wrote it that way that states shall establish exchanges, but of course, we all recognize that the federal government cannot uh, mandate or as the technical term says, commandeer states and state officials to do their bidding, uh, even though that term shall is still there. We also have this provision that if the states do not set up exchanges, then the federal government will do so. Uh, but uh the, the intent was clear that or the 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 desire to promote uh, federalism to promote uh, state management of healthcare uh, and so how could the federal government entice states to set up these exchanges? Well, one possibility would be to provide subsidies for their citizens if they get insurance from these state exchanges and to deny them uh, commensurately uh, if they didn't set up the exchanges and uh, the federal fallback uh, went into effect. That's plausible. Uh, it's certainly not implausible. Um, we don't know exactly what was going on. Nobody does because this was put together behind closed doors and then rushed into uh uh, enactment and, and we all know that, uh, sorted, uh, history. Uh, we have no contemporaneous accounts one way or another. Now, you know, different people are saying, oh, well, what I intended or what I meant and, and what have you. But again, these sorts of statements don't trump, uh, the clear text, uh, unless again there's some absurd result. And so Scalia is basically saying, and he goes, line by line. He has some really clever zingers that uh, words no longer have meaning if an exchange that is not established by a state is, quote, established by the state. Um, that this is all interpretive, jiggery-pokery that I think uh, echoes his uh, his line from uh, the Windsor dissent about uh, legalistic argle-bargle. <laughs> um, these are words that I'm learning for myself. I mean, I, I don't think Scalia is actually inventing them. He's drawing them from some immense capacity of uh, uh... archaic uh... insults i suppose uh... but he does call the uh... the majority opinion uh... absurd Um and so here he you know goes through various canons of interpretation fully obviously is known for uh... his uh... theories of of statutory interpretation more than perhaps any other justice Um, and and shows why the court, the majority, is kind of bending over backwards or or twisting itself into knots to um, uh, find ambiguity and then to to read the law, to read A as being equivalent to not A, uh, why that doesn't make sense. And ultimately, even though John Roberts concludes by saying um, that uh, courts are to defer to the legislature and it's the legislature's intent to provide health care for everyone and therefore we have to uh, uh... reconfigure reinterpret the law here uh... scalia says well precisely because we have to uh, uh... defer to congress in terms of what it enacts uh... we should enforce the law as written and if congress doesn't uh... like it uh... it can uh, change the law and uh, while it's certainly true all of the uh... policy Parade of horribles or economic parade of horribles that Irwin listed; uh, those were, would undoubtedly be true if um, nothing changed, if states didn't act, if Congress didn't act. Um, I think there would be, uh, would have been, uh, tremendous, obvious political pressure and a three-dimensional game of chicken between those various actors, uh, and we would have had, uh, uh, hopefully, well, now it's a hypothetical on a hypothetical um, uh, real reform. Now the chance of that is a bit retarded. But anyway, we can uh, we can get into those sorts of uh, arguments uh, uh, later. Uh, but at the bottom line, though, is here we have clear text uh, that does not produce an absurd result and therefore must be enforced. That's what Scalia argues, and I agree with him.
0: Thanks so much for that, Ilya, and any podcast that uses jiggery-pokery and argle-bargle in the same answer is a success. Uh, Irwin, um, is Chief Justice Roberts conceding Justice Scalia's point that the act... Uh, seems on its face to contemplate uh, that only exchanges established by the states get tax breaks and instead appealing to broader purpose or context? Uh, Or, by contrast, is he coming up with a counter-textualist argument that reads uh, the entire structure of the various parts of the act uh, in context? I'd like you to contrast for us Justice Roberts' uh, statutory interpretation philosophy with that of Justice Scalia. Justice, Justice
1: Roberts says that the statutory language is unclear. And Chief Justice Roberts points to his own language to support plain meaning in favor of the United States government. He says that the federal government, states don't create exchanges, shall create such exchanges and tax credits are available for those who purchase insurance on such exchanges. That includes both those created by the state governments and federal governments. But also it's important to remember that the Supreme Court has said on countless occasions, that statutes should be interpreted to carry out the intent of the legislature. Now, I know Justice Scalia is one who says we should only look at plain language, we shouldn't look at legislative history, but there's never been a majority of the Supreme Court that's taken that position, and hopefully there won't be. I think both at the federal level and state level, it's well established. Statutes should be interpreted to carry out the intent of the legislature. And the intent of the legislature here is clear, and that's what Chief Justice Roberts says. Congress wanted to make sure that those who qualified economically would be able to get insurance through tax credits. Judge Harry Edwards, in his dissent in the D.C. Circuit when this was there, said, there is no plausible theory of statutory interpretation that says that Congress that adopts the law wants to include within it a mechanism for the law's destruction. And that's what Chief Justice Roberts says here. It's just not plausible that Congress wanted to give states that didn't create exchanges the means of destroying the Affordable Care Act and the health care exchanges.
0: Ilya, what is the response to that? And, and and more broadly, what's the response to Chief Justice Roberts' suggestion that really here it's Justice Scalia who's being the interpretive radical that that by embracing an a contextual Uh, interpretive philosophy that takes particular clauses out of context, he's reaching a result that clearly clashes with Congress's unequivocal purpose.
2: Well, intent matters, as, or the purpose of the legislation matters uh, when you start looking at extrinsic factors, when the statutory text and context for that matter uh, isn't clear. But as Scalia says, let us not forget why context matters. It's a tool for understanding the terms of the law, not an excuse for rewriting them. And this is not uh, an isolated four words established by the state that just is a some sort of typo or uh, speako, as Jonathan Gruber, uh, uh, the architect of the legislation, uh, liked to say. Um, this was used in the tax credit section uh, six, uh, alone six times. And uh, there, 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 the text distinguishes between state exchanges, federal exchanges, territorial exchanges. Uh, that's another uh, issue until very recently. The administration did not want to provide subsidies to territorial exchanges because they're not state exchanges, for example. Um, and so you can't simply go by, well, it's, it's the Affordable Care Act. The intent is obviously to expand access and lower cost of health care to people uh and therefore we can't deny them subsidies that's like saying that uh congress enacts ideas or uh, uh faith uh based uh, wishes and then uh interpretive agencies can do whatever they want in uh enacting or or writing the laws uh, uh therein here we have clear statutory text uh and it's not that uh interpreting it would destroy the legislation Uh, Interpreting it as the challengers, as the plaintiffs wanted, uh, would have, uh, uh, under the argument that I agree with, would have enforced Obamacare uh, as it's written, which has some problems. And that's not the only part of Obamacare that's imperfect and and flawed and and needs to be reformed. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. All uh, laws produced by people uh, are going to have some uh, uh, issues or uh, policy and political um, uh, problems uh, uh, with them. And uh, just like the drafters of the Affordable Care Act didn't expect so many states, in fact a majority, not to set up their own exchanges, um, that's why we are uh, in this mess. Uh, Nobody uh, who was designing the law, who was passing it, who knew anything about it, uh, thought that we would have this dilemma because, of course, every state would take this wonderful so-called free pot of money Uh, from the government. But uh, a funny thing happened on the way to utopia, and here, uh, you know, in in my view, the Supreme Court, John Roberts, again had to rewrite the law in order to save uh, some mythical uh, functioning.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for that, Ilya. And now, a word from our sponsor. This episode of We the People is brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers engaging video and audio lectures from top professors and experts in their fields. I've been plugging my own course, uh, and I'm delighted now to plug someone else's. Uh, That's The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, presented by the award-winning professor Thomas Pangle. The course gives fascinating insights into the different perspectives and arguments that shape the Constitution, and it's hard to imagine a more important topic presented from the perspective of both advocates and opponents. The Great Courses, celebrating their 25th anniversary, has over 500 courses on topics like history, science, photography, and more. Watch or listen with online downloads and streaming via The Great Courses apps or on DVDs or CDs. The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling series, including The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, at up to 80% off the original price. But hurry! Hurry! This 80% savings is only available for a limited time. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com people. That's thegreatcourses.com people. Irwin, I want to ask you about Justice Scalia's charge at the end of the opinion that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has rewritten the law and that uh, in the future it really should be called SCOTUS care rather than Obamacare. He quotes Alexander Hamilton, and he's saying that the court is empowering and expanding its authority by taking it upon itself to cure drafting errors. Uh, is that persuasive? Or, or, or by contrast, is Chief Justice Roberts by refusing to defer to an agency interpretation and saying it's it's up to the court to figure out what Congress really meant being more deferential to Congress rather than less?
1: Ultimately, a court always has to decide what did the legislature intend and carry out that statute. Chief Justice Roberts says here, there's textual language pointing in both directions. Bill, wants to constantly point to the language state-established exchange, but Chief Justice Roberts says, who also makes clear that a person gets a tax credit they purchase from such exchange, and such exchange includes those created by the federal government and the state. Chief Justice Roberts says, Congress's goal here was to make insurance affordable to millions of Americans through tax credits. No one, not Justice Scalia, not Ilya, can decide that, deny that. If the court would have accepted Justice Scalia's interpretation, then millions of people would not have health insurance. The very exchanges that Congress wanted to create would then be destroyed. And so here I think that Justice Scalia is wrong. Yes, of course, factually the Supreme Court has now twice saved the Affordable Care Act. Three years ago, when they upheld the individual mandate, and today, when they upheld the health care exchanges. But I think in both instances, the Supreme Court got it exactly right. Right as a matter of constitutional law, and right as a matter of statutory interpretation. The court didn't rewrite the statute. The court followed what was clearly an intent to Congress, including as provided for in the plain language of the statute.
0: Ilya, what's your response to Irwin's uh, suggestion that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, far from rewriting the law, is actually vindicating its text and purposes? And also uh, several uh, National Constitution Center uh, friends and uh, listeners uh, throughout the course of the day have asked uh, me this question that I'd like your thoughts on. They say that Justice Scalia says that courts should look at the original understanding of constitutional text. But in this case, he seems to be saying that we should look at the congressional text without looking at its legislative history and purposes. How does he reconcile those two positions?
2: Sure. Uh, First, um, on whether who's vindicating the law, that sort of uh, begs the question in the sense that both sides wanted the law to be vindicated. Both sides believe that their interpretation of the statutory provisions at issue uh were the correct ways of interpreting the law that the court should then enforce. Now obviously there are consequences to this. Um there are consequences to the uh, uh subsidies continuing to flow, that is the mandates and uh, on employers and others, the uh penalties concomitant to that keep uh, in the challengers' view, illegally uh, operating in those states as well. There are winners and losers. There were going to be winners and losers, uh, regardless how the uh, Supreme Court ruled. So just to say, we, uh, Roberts' opinion is a vindication of the law. Well, it is to those who agreed with his statutory interpretation. It's not to uh, those who disagreed, and vice versa. Uh, and so this wasn't about. Uh, vindicating the law, this was looking at whether, you know, this wasn't a constitutional case like three years ago about whether, uh, the law is struck down or upheld. This is about an IRS rule that interpreted the law. And that raises a, a related very important point here, uh, that I think is uh, the one very small silver lining for, uh, those who agree with Scalia. And that's that the Roberts opinion does not hang its hat on so-called chevron deference that is the the doctrine that almost always courts should defer to the uh, interpretations of uh, executive agencies uh, on what a statute means instead uh, it's a pure statutory interpretation case and he found roberts found ambiguity and therefore uh... construed or interpreted the statute to mean uh... one thing rather than the other that's important because uh... one of the big fears uh... of uh... the those who supported the, the the challengers here was that in using chevron deference the court would open the door to just uh... uh... a whole plethora of administrative executive uh... legislating uh... here perhaps that precedent has not been set in that way though at the cost of uh, some questionable, in my view, uh, wordplay with statutory interpretation. And now is that a charge uh, about rewriting the law, is that really rich coming from Scalia given that he's so much about originalism? Well, he's actually not. He's sort of a fair weather originalist, but setting that aside, um, he's so much about the original understanding of the Constitution. Why isn't he about the uh, legislative intent of a statute? Um, well first of all it 's because it 's you know, you don 't look at the original intent of the of the of the, of the framers of the constitution it 's the original understanding of the of the words, uh, and therefore legislative intent is somewhat different, so kind of the correlate would be the original understanding of the words, which is exactly what we 're doing here anyway and let 's recall that John Roberts, to his credit, um, did not uh, base his opinion in any part on statements by legislators of what they uh, thought they were doing their intent it 's very hard to um, uh, produce a plausible tale of what legislative intent really is, given that there 's four hundred and thirty five legislators, not all of them agree what 's legislated is actually what the law is, regardless of someone when what someone might have intended that provision might not have gotten in, etc cetera, etc cetera. All the typical problems with with legislative intent, so he didn 't rely on that he relied on kind of this global metaphysical intent to provide. Better, cheaper health care for all, which means, well, they certainly would have, uh, that supports his position that they certainly would not have want to cut off subsidies for millions of people. So I don't, you know, sometimes I do find plenty to contradict in Scalia's so-called originalism, for example, in how he interpreted the, away the privileges or immunities clause uh, in the McDonald case regarding uh, Second Amendment rights as applied to the states. And there are many other examples as well. Uh, but here, I don't, I don't see any contradiction between uh, applying canons, uh, basic canons of, of statutory interpretation uh, and also wanting to apply the original understanding of constitutional provisions.
0: Many thanks for that, Ilya. And now another word from our sponsor. We the People is sponsored by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealings with retailers and showrooms and passing the savings directly to the customer. That would be you. Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered and sold at a shockingly fair price. They have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. Casper has a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days. That's free delivery and painless returns. Casper mattresses are also made in America. We've mentioned the shockingly low prices. Get ready to be shocked. Casper mattresses are $500 for a twin mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Compare that to the industry averages. That's an outstanding price. We, the People listeners, that's you, can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash people and using the promo code PEOPLE. Erwin, can you... Cast this debate in historical perspective for our listeners. Uh, Chief Judge Robert Katzman of the Second Circuit has written a very interesting book about statutory interpretation, and he says that for most of American history, uh, representatives in Congress from both parties, Republicans and Democrats, have expected the courts to consult their legislative intent in trying to figure out what a what a law means, and that Justice Scalia's claim that you should just look at the text and not the legislative history is a relatively recent. Vintage. Is, is that correct? And is Chief Justice Roberts returning to an older and more conservative notion of uh, statutory interpretation?
1: Judge Katzman is correct. Throughout history, courts have always begun by looking at the language of the statute. But as is so with regard to the Affordable Care Act, often the plain meaning isn't at all plain. Relatively few cases can be resolved just on the words of the statute. Here you've got words in the statute pointing in both directions. And so over time, courts have developed a number of different mechanisms of figuring out the ultimate question. What did the legislature intend to do? One thing the courts historically have looked at is legislative history, the statements in hearings, the statements in congressional records. Now, Justice Scalia has strongly opposed using legislative history, and we tend to think that that's now the position of the court. But it's not. Justice Scalia may say his position louder than anybody else. And you say it may often more often than anybody else, but the court's never rejected looking at legislative history. There's other doctrines of statutory interpretation as well. Ilya was mentioning the so-called Chevron deference, which is a court should defer to administrative agencies and their expertise in interpreting statutes. In criminal cases, there's the rule of lenity, that criminal statutes should be interpreted in favor of criminal defendants. There's principles that say that if the statutes that conflict the more recent gets primacy over the older. And what Judge Katzman said was, we have many different ways of interpreting statutes, all of which go to the same question. What did the legislature intend to do? And that's exactly what Chief Justice Roberts did in his majority opinion today in King versus Burwell.
0: Ilya, what's your response to uh, uh, Irwin's suggestion and and that of uh, Chief Judge uh, Katzman as well? that Justice Scalia really has invented a a novel, if not radical, uh, interpretive theory that is hard to square with the approach of conservative and liberal judges for most of American history.
2: You know, that may or may not be the case, uh, but it's irrelevant to this case, because as I said, um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts did not uh, employ uh, legislative history. We did not see uh, the entry of committee reports or, or even... Post hoc uh, statements that we've seen recently from committee chairman or, or anyone else about uh, what the intent of the provision was, let alone Jonathan Gruber, or try to you know try to parse this debate through extrinsic evidence uh, or, or, or whatever is available. I think um, I think that's that's a good thing for 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 this case because the legislative history, such as it is, for this law, is convoluted and scant uh, for that matter because a lot of it was done behind closed doors. Uh, and you can't just impute sort of the history of, as President Obama put it, the, the century-long battle for uh, making healthcare a right in this country, to, to paraphrase, that, that sort of thing. That's that kind of a, a general intent, I suppose, that some people have, but you don't just impute kind of something like that to a specific statute. So, again, we did not have specific battles of legislative intent whether you're supposed to use it or not uh... here so we'll we'll set aside i think we need to set aside that battle for another day i i'm not as i personally am not as absolutist as justice scalia that uh, you should never use legislative uh... history uh... but again thankfully it, it wasn't in play here what seemed to be more in play were these policy arguments about how many people would lose their coverage what effect this would have on the economy etc uh... that i think is irrelevant for a different reason because courts are charged to make uh... Uh, legal calls, uh, balls and strikes as, as John Roberts put it as confirmation hearings rather than, uh, act as politicians or, or political economists. Uh, and, and so again, I'll just go back to, uh, the fact that the statute is clear, not just those four words, but uh, those uh, four words are the concept of exchange, state exchange, as it appears in various places. And therefore, uh, the court should have uh, enforced uh, that provision as written, uh, unless there were, would, would have otherwise been uh, an absurd result, a, a statute that no Congress could have passed. And, and I think they didn't meet that bar. But I got, I got uh, outvoted.
0: Wonderful. Well, now it's time for one last word from our sponsor. This episode of We the People is brought to you by Harry's.com. Harry's has quality German blades for half the price of big-name drugstore brands. What would you do with all the money you're saving by shaving with Harry's? Well, I don't know what you would do, but I know what I would do. I would become a member of the National Constitution Center, which is well worth supporting because of our inspiring mission to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. Harry's starter is just $15. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. As an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the code PEOPLE. That's one word. After using the code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Harrys.com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience for all men. Go to Harrys.com, and Harrys will give you $5 off if you type in the code PEOPLE. Go to Harrys.com and enter coupon code PEOPLE at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today, Irwin. You've been quite uh, uh, praiseworthy of, of Chief Justice Roberts recently. On a, on one of our recent podcasts, you 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 praised his uh, opinion in the in the Zivotosky uh, passport case. And I want to ask you how you think his decision today fits into his broader and stated goal to take the court's legitimacy into account. His critics have said that he's. Uh, just playing politics. And Ilya just suggested that he was looking at pragmatic considerations and going beyond the law. Do you think that's what he's doing here? Or when he talks about congressional purpose and is concerned about the court's standing in society, he is taking legal rather than political considerations into account?
1: I think this is entirely a decision that you'd call legal as opposed to political. I think what he said was, we have to interpret the statute to carry out Congress' intent. Congress' intent was that those who qualify economically should be able to get tax credits when they purchase insurance from exchanges. I don't think he was doing this to enhance the court's legitimacy or to please the public. The reality is the Affordable Care Act is so politically divisive. Half the people would like any decision, and half the people would dislike any decision. I think what he was doing is what courts do, interpreting the statute. How does this fit into John Roberts' larger jurisprudence? Well, I think this fits in terms of the way he approaches statutory interpretation. I also think that this case and a prior one about the Affordable Care Act reflects something else about John Roberts. I think John Roberts tends to be a pro-business justice much more than a traditional states' rights justice. That John Roberts in his career worked in the Reagan administration, worked as a deputy solicitor general in the Bush administration. He, in private practice, represented business interests before the Supreme Court. I think he is inclined towards federal power and inclined towards business interests. This case is about, in his decision, is vindicating federal power and helping an enormous business in this country, the insurance industry. I think he's not a justice who's as just to states' rights arguments as, say, a Sandra Day O'Connor or William Rehnquist, who by their background were disposed towards states. And so I think this case and the one from three years ago reflects something larger about John Roberts and his approach to the law.
0: Ilya, what do you think the case says about John Roberts and his approach to the law? Is he uh, playing politics or pragmatism, um, as you suggested earlier? Is he a pro-business justice, or do you have some other take on his uh, opinion in this case?
2: I don't know if he's a pro-business justice. I do think he's um, temperamentally conservative, and certainly a minimalist, kind of a don't rock the boat, if at all possible. Um, although that's a hard story to tell as well, given uh, his votes, I think he felt um, uh, backed into a corner in, in cases like Citizens United and Shelby County, that there was nowhere, no, no further minimalism to pursue in those cases, perhaps. Um, I think Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, is just so sui generis um, that uh, it's hard to generalize, but I think that... Uh, he thinks that this is such a large piece of legislation, and, and he wants to minimize the court 's role that it's ultimately if any significant changes are to be made to it, they have to come from the political process now. I think he diverges from probably a pure kind of Oliver Wendell Holmes judicial restraint model in the sense that a Holmesian would bend over backwards constitutionally to allow Congress or legislature to do whatever it wants, but then would enforce it good and hard as it were and uh not be flexible on uh you know rewriting or reinterpreting in a way that's not the quote unquote natural uh meaning. Um so I you know I don't think he's uh evolving in a liberal direction as it were. Those there's, there's some fears from conservatives. It doesn't mean that you can't criticize George W. Bush for appointing him if that's uh what you want to do, but it's not because he's becoming more liberal in office. I think he's just cautious He cares about the institution of the court. He does care about certain pragmatic or small-p political considerations. Uh, I think he gets them wrong a lot, which is why we don't want judges, another reason we don't want judges doing that. Um, But his whole career, he played his cards very close to the vest. And yes, he checked certain boxes so that he would be nominated uh, in a Republican administration, but he certainly didn't have a track record uh of others that had been considered or even uh, Justice Alito who was uh, nominated right behind him uh and proved to be a more controversial nominee so um, this just shows you know he's not a david suitor he's not a an, an empty suit as it were onto which people were project conservatives were projecting their uh greatest desires and liberals are their their biggest fears uh but he's certainly not a a movement uh Conservative or originalist or or anything of of that kind. And so that should certainly play into future discussions uh, when there's a Republican president making uh, an appointment.
0: Wonderful. Well, we are out of time, and those extremely thoughtful uh, closing arguments are a great way to end. I want to thank our superb Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board members, Erwin Chemerinsky and Ilya Shapiro for an extremely thoughtful debate about uh, what may be one of the most controversial cases of the term. Uh, Our next podcast will cover the remaining cases, including the same-sex marriage uh, decision that is expected any day. And let me just close by thanking our listeners for having been with us during this great uh, constitutional drumbeat month and saying that if you – Uh, feel that the great educational ambition of these podcasts is useful, namely to bring together the best minds on all sides of the constitutional issues at the center of American life, I hope you'll consider supporting the National Constitution Center. Uh, Above all, though, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.